you stand with me or remain standing with me, let's confess our faith together in the words of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to Hades. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. Well, uh, I want to add my uh, happy Father's Day greetings, men. So thankful for you and for the roles that you play in your families. Uh, we're, we're so happy for you and so proud of you. We're, we're providing donuts for you today. How's that? Um, and there's uh, after after the service, uh, there's coffee, there's donuts for dads out there. And I think if you're not a dad, you might actually be able to score a donut too. So. Um, or at least a cup of coffee. There's like Homer Simpson donuts out there, the pink ones with the sprinkles and all kinds of things. So it, it, it's great. Hey, I want to let you know uh, where we're going here this summer in terms of our sermon series. Um, next week, we will conclude this series through the Apostles' Creed. And then uh, following that, we have uh, some special speakers for three weeks at the end of July, we're going to begin a series that will take us through um, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and then the book of Jude, and that's going to take us right through September, and then the, the first Sunday in October, which if I recall is October 3rd, uh, we're going to begin a series through the Acts of the Apostles, which, uh, well, I think will take us most of the year, so... Um, that's where we're headed. Hope you'll be here for all of that. And then one last thing I want to say before we get into the message, and that is that um, we've invited you to work on the trails out there. And maybe you saw some pictures this week um, on our Facebook group. It's beautiful out there. Uh, the work that has already been done is great, such great improvement to the trails, widening and uh, laying down uh chipped wood on the trails. It's beautiful out there. And uh, our, our vision, though, is not that we're always working out there, but rather that it becomes a place where you can come, uh, get alone with God, uh, read your Bible, pray, meditate, uh, just think, uh, enjoy. And if you, if you haven't been out there yet, I, I would just encourage you to go out and walk the trails. They're not extensive, but they're beautiful. And there's a stream that runs down through the ravine, and so you've got the sound of the stream and songbirds in the trees and the sound of the wind in the trees. It's just a pretty special place that God has given us here on this campus. And uh, so I hope that you'll take advantage of that. Well, today's message is the 11th in this series, and our topic this week is, I believe, in the forgiveness of sins. The Apostles' Creed, as we have seen, affirms the biblical truth that mankind is held captive to sin and faces God's impending judgment. 
We have rebelled in every way against him and his rule over our lives. But here, joyfully, uh, the creed also celebrates the truth that God forgives sins. Uh, And though this article, this line, the forgiveness of sins, uh, comprises only four words, the truth that these four words announce is astounding. The glory of God's grace through the atoning sacrifice of Christ on the cross. The fact that we who deserve nothing other than eternal condemnation away from the presence of God can be forgiven, reconciled to God, and receive the gift of everlasting life is both scandalous and shocking. It's the greatest news that any of us will ever receive. Forgiveness of sins is at the heart of the gospel. In Luke chapter 5, we read this account from very early in Jesus' public ministry. It says, On one of those days as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there, who had come, notice, from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. It's a lot of villages. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. I've always loved this story. It's one of my favorite stories in Scripture because picture this with me. Here you have all these religious dignitaries from all over the place, Jerusalem, Judea, Galilee, they're crowded, apparently, into a large room in a house, probably sweating in their robes like middle-aged men at an August wedding, right? I mean, they're and, and yet they're trying to look as solemn and dignified and as dignified as they possibly can. And they're absorbed in Jesus' teaching when a, a shaft of light abruptly slashes through the darkness of the room. And then a chunk of tile drops and hits one of the Pharisees square on the head. And abruptly, just an avalanche of of roofing materials descends on them as the roof caves in. And they look up in astonishment and they see four faces smiling and waving and a bed descending from the hole in the roof. Close encounters of the bedroom kind. You know, I, I just have to believe that Jesus in that moment was doing his very best to hold back a belly laugh uh, at, the, at the boldness and the audacity of these four intrepid friends of the paralytic combined with these uh, stuffy Pharisees and scribes and teachers of the law in their robes, now dusty and disheveled and covered in roofing material. It, it, it really is a comedic moment. And then notice verse 20. When he saw their faith, that is the faith of the, the four guys looking down from the ceiling, he said to the man in the bed, man, your sins are forgiven you. 
And at that very moment, that man's sins were forgiven him. That's the truth. That wasn't precisely what these four friends of the paralytic had come to hear. Uh, They hadn't brought him to Jesus to be forgiven of his sins. They wanted to hear him speak words of healing. They had carried him from who knows where to where Jesus was in the desperate hope that this rabbi, this prophet, whatever he was, about whom they had heard, might have compassion on their friend and heal him and restore him to health and vitality. Neither was it certainly what those Jewish leaders wanted to hear either. At at verse 21, we, we read that they began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Good question. Answer? No one possesses authority to forgive sins but God alone. But Jesus wasn't done yet, and so what's he up to here? He he's revealing in a in a surprising manner his identity and his corresponding authority. So notice where he goes from there. When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Rise and walk? And what's the answer to that question? Clearly. It's easier to say your sins are forgiven you. Why? Because it doesn't require any empirical evidence. But if Jesus were to say, rise and walk, and it didn't actually happen, he would be exposed as a false prophet. So what did he do? He went on, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. Get out of here. Get up on your feet. Run, skip, dance, get out of here. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. Very quickly, three important observations. First, Jesus is God. Did you see how he juxtaposed the two actions? He he forgave the paralytic man, and then by healing him, he demonstrated undeniably his authority to also forgive sin. Second, Jesus possesses the authority to heal. He spoke healing, and healing occurred. Third, Jesus revealed that his primary mission in the world was not to heal every one of us of all of our diseases and all of our infirmities. The fact is that physical death awaits all of us unless he comes first. Rather, his mission was to offer forgiveness of sin and reconciliation with God. He defined his mission this way in Luke 19.10, the Son of Man came to seek and to save those who are lost. The late J.I. Packer wrote, the good news is that sins 
can be forgiven. Central to the gospel is the glorious but of Psalm 130, verse 4. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. See, in Adam, all die. In Adam, all die. The very first line of the Bible reads this way. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And reading on in that first chapter of Genesis, we learn that in six days, God created everything that exists in the universe out of nothing by speaking it into existence, by his powerful word. And creation then saw its crowning culmination in God making man, male and female, in his own image and commissioning them to be fruitful, to multiply, to populate the earth with more little image bearers. Genesis 1.31 concludes, And God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And then in Genesis 2, in kind of a micro view of creation, God scoops up a handful of dirt from the ground and and shapes it into a man, it says, and <laughs> blows into his the nostrils of this dirt man the breath of life. And it says the man became a living being. But beforehand, God had created a garden, a place of abundance that would provide all of the man's needs. And there he placed the man to work it, to cultivate it. And he gives to the man one command. You're welcome and free to eat from every tree in the garden, but of just one tree, a tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat because in the day that you do, you will surely die. Now don't come to me after the service or email this email me this week and say, well, why did God put the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden anyway? I don't know. I'm not him. There was a little kid that used to come here and I uh, can't remember his name, the Andrews kid. And one Sunday, he was walking by me with his mom, and he looked up at me, and he said to his mom, Mom, is that God? I look as old as God, I know. But I'm not him. And then the Lord God saw that the one not good in all creation was that the man was alone. There was no one else like him. And to remedy that problem, God created a woman out of the rib of the man and like a father of the bride, presented her to him. And then at the close of Genesis 2, there's this sense that life in paradise is dependent on two things, the breath of God in their lungs and obedience to the command. Just that. Then comes chapter 3, when Adam and Eve, by an act of willful disobedience, just destroyed, demolished the fabric of perfect community that existed between themselves and, and God. The biblical text tells us that they wanted to be like God, and their pride plunged them, all of creation, all of us, 
into futility. The good world, good world that God made now exists under a curse of condemnation through the sin of one man, Adam. From Adam, sin and death, the Bible tells us, spread to all of humanity. As the story of sin's far-reaching effects intensifies in chapter 4, Adam and Eve have two boys, Cain and Abel. And when Cain and Abel grow up and, and become young men, Cain kills his brother Abel in cold blood. By Genesis 6, we read that the wickedness of man was so great that every intention of the thoughts of men and women was only evil all the time, it says. 24-7, 365. God judges the earth. He destroys it in a worldwide flood, wiping it clean from the taint of mankind with the exception of eight people, Noah and his family. But after the flood, the story of sin continues, revealing that mankind cannot escape, cannot escape the curse that began in the garden with Adam and the serpent and a holy God. The Bible then tells us that the curse of Adam spread to every corner of creation. See, the pandemic of sin exists in all of us. We can't mask it. We can't isolate ourselves from it. We can't vaccinate ourselves against it. Sin always results in death. The ratio is pretty tight. One out of every one human being dies. Paul wrote to the Romans, chapter 5, verse 12, sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. The Bible says that there is no one who does not sin. Paul wrote to the Romans again, chapter 3, verse 23, for everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. The Apostle John adds, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. See, we deceive ourselves. We don't deceive anybody else because everybody else knows what a sinner we are. We just deceive ourselves. Not only did sin spread to every person, but it also spread to every part of every person. I once heard someone say, well, I may not be totally perfect, but parts of me are excellent, which is kind of funny, but but it's fundamentally untrue from the perspective of meeting God's righteous, God's righteous standard. None of us is perfect in any part. The truth is that There is no aspect of our lives or of our very beings that is not tainted by sin. Sin's a perversity, it's a twistedness that that touches each of us at every point in our lives. With the exception of Jesus Christ, no human being has ever been free of its infection. It's constantly being revealed in our desires as well as our deeds, in our motives, in our morals, in our attitudes as well as our actions. You may have heard the theological term total depravity, which does not mean that we are as bad as we can possibly be, but it does mean that there's nothing we can do about our condition. There's nothing we can do to save ourselves. There's nothing we can do to remedy 
the condition of our sin and our separation from God. And because that's true, because that's true, no one can reach the standard of God's perfect righteousness and holiness. We're, we're born in sin because as members of his family, his sin is imputed to us. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, In Adam all die. There's a disease that's passed down to every descendant of Adam. It's innate to every one of us. It's both congenital and fatal. To be a member of the Adam's family is to stand condemned from the moment of our birth. I've often said that the, the, the TV show The Adam's Family was aptly named because they were all dead. No human being can stand alone as righteous before the judgment seat of God. Unless someone intervenes to change our status, to change our trajectory, all that awaits us is death and eternal condemnation. See, we each need to see our sin as God sees our sin. We often hear that the English word sin comes from the world of archery and means to miss the mark or to fall short of the target. And it certainly includes that. And that graphic image provides a picture our minds can easily grasp. But the Greek word hamartia, that's translated sin in the New Testament, gives us a particular angle on the effect of sin. It's a compound word that literally means no share or no part. What that means is that by our sin, we exclude ourselves from a share in the life of God. Before he was arrested and condemned to die, Jesus spent an evening with his disciples. And after after dinner, John tells us that Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. And then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. See, what a powerful moment. Jesus laying aside his outer garments and wrapping a towel around his waist presents himself in the garb of a household servant. When Peter resisted, Jesus replied, If I do not wash you, Peter, you have no share with me. He used a slightly different form of this word hamartia, but it conveys the same idea. Jesus used the traditional practice of foot washing to convey to Peter that unless Peter submitted to and willingly received the cleansing that he offered, he had no share in Christ. Peter got the picture, and he asked for a complete bath. See, in our sin, neither 
do you and I have any share in Christ, any claim to the life that Christ died to give us? Jesus said that there will be many on the day of judgment who will expect to be admitted into heaven on the basis of their religiosity or their basic good works, their baptism, their church membership. And and to their horror, he will say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Why are they excluded? They're excluded from eternal life by their failure to meet God's righteous standard, all the while expecting that God will accept their own self-made, self-defined standard of righteousness. The Bible speaks of our sin as rebellion, perversity, twistedness, defilement, falling short, missing the mark. Each of us needs to come to see our sin as God sees it, to gain some sense of the depth of our offense of a holy God. One well-known theologian put it this way, your sin amounts to nothing less than a desire for God to cease being God. Your sin rebels as cosmic treason. Your sin against God beckons him to step off the throne that you might ascend its steps. Your sin wishes the Creator to relinquish his rightful rule and claim to glory and give way to your will. Our failure to perceive the terrifying and awesome glory of God leads to a diminished valuation of sin. And an anemic view of sin will always give way to a cheap gospel, a pointless cross, and a Messiah who need not have shed his blood. The prophet Habakkuk said to God, You are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. See, none of us can stand before the holy God, the righteous judge, clothed in our own righteousness. None of us. So what can we do? Nothing. Not a single thing. What do we need? We need to be washed, forgiven, and clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ alone. In Christ, all are made alive. In Christ, all are made alive. Paul wrote again to the Corinthians, For as a man, as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. With Adam as our family head, we all die. So what do we need? We need our need is to be adopted into a, a new family, the family of God. Galatians four four tells us, but when the right time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, subject to the law. God sent him to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law so that he could adopt us as his very own children. And because we are his children, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, prompting us to call out, Abba, Father. See, when we respond to God, when we, when we transfer our trust from, from all that other stuff that we depend on, 
to Jesus Christ alone, here's what happened. Here's what happens. God adopts us as his very own. John wrote, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. We need a new family. We each need to understand the cost of our salvation as God understands it. Jesus said, For God so loved, so loved, so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. You know, I think we uh, of our tribe often give consideration to the price paid by God the Son, Jesus our Savior. We, we rarely pause, though, to reflect on the cost to God the Heavenly Father. But so great was His love for us, so great the chasm that lay between us that He did not consider the sacrifice of His one and only Son, His one and only Son, too high a price to pay. Perhaps on this Father's Day, we might pause to reflect on the immensity of that love, the depth of that love, the extent of that love. Paul wrote that God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, while we were still hostile, while we were still apathetic, while we were still just the way we are, Christ died for us at the cross. God laid on him the sin of us all. He bore our sins in his own body on the cross, and there God just poured out on his son, his only son, the full measure of his wrath toward our sin. He bore our sin. He died our death. He paid the most infinitely extreme price to satisfy a debt he didn't owe. And the Bible says that God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God through Christ. J.I. Packer relates the story of a man who, in great distress over his own sin, wrote to the reformer Martin Luther. And Luther, who himself had suffered long agonies over this problem, replied, Learn to know Christ and Him crucified. Learn to sing to him and say, Lord Jesus, you are my righteousness. I am your sin. You took on what was, you took on you what was mine. You set on me what was yours. You became what you were not that I might become what I was not. See, the only basis for an assurance of forgiveness is the promise of the sovereign God. Many of us today struggle with that sense of assurance. Now, we can have assurance because of what God said and because of what God did. 1 John 1, 8-9, we find this promise that informs our belief in the forgiveness of sins. If we claim we have no sin, we are only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. But 
if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. To confess literally means to say the same thing. It means to say the same thing that God says about our sin. It means to agree with him about our guilt. We are called, we are invited to confess our sins continually. If we were to read verse 9 in the Greek text, it would read, but if we keep on confessing our sins to him, he is faithful and just to keep on forgiving us our sins and to keep on cleansing us from all unrighteousness. Why? Because of one thing and one thing alone what Christ accomplished at the cross. God is both faithful and just to do so. Faithful because he always keeps his promises. Just because God's justice was vindicated at the cross. It was satisfied at the cross. And the blood of Christ keeps on doing its perfect work in us. Finally, forgiveness of sin comes only by faith in Jesus Christ. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, Paul wrote to the Romans, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Well, what does it mean to be justified? Someone once wrote that when I'm justified, it's just as if I'd never sinned. That's not far off the mark. We we might say that justification is forgiveness plus. Forgiveness plus. Justification is, first of all, a judicial act. When God, the righteous judge, hands down the decision to justify you on the basis of faith in Jesus Christ, it is a decision he will never take back. There is no double jeopardy with God. And because of that, you and I can have assurance that our past is washed clean. Our status will not change for the future. The essential difference between simple forgiveness and and the justification that God grants us on the basis of faith is, is that it's not based on the emotions of a moment. God doesn't hear our confession of sin and say, Ah, shucks, I forgive you. And later change his mind. It will never change because God's promise is final. God accepts you perfectly, totally, completely, comprehensively in Christ. Not on the basis of your righteousness. Not on the basis of your performance at any given moment. But only on the performance of Jesus Christ. On the basis of his perfect Righteousness. 
The greatest need of every heart in life is forgiveness of sin. To know that you have peace with God, that you're in a right relationship with him. And this morning, I'm going to ask you to do something that we, that I don't usually ask you to do. But if this morning you are here and you're saying, I, I need Jesus. I need to enter into a relationship with him. I, I need his cleansing. I need his forgiveness. I need his justification. And as we sing this next song, I'm going to ask you to come and stand right up here in the front. And by standing here, you're saying, I'm receiving Jesus Christ as my Savior today. And there are others here this morning uh, who are Christians, but you're living under a, a heavy load of guilt over sin that, that you haven't confessed to God or, or anyone else for that matter. And you need to know that your sin is forgiven, that the blood of Jesus Christ is still cleansing you from all unrighteousness. And again, to, to confess is simply to agree with God that about the fact of your sin, about the guilt of your sin, about your need for cleansing. It means to just to come clean with Him. So today, if that describes you, you're, you're carrying a load of guilt. I want to invite you to come as well. You don't have to worry. I'm not going to ask anybody to say a word. I'm not going to ask you to come up here and publicly confess your sins. That's between you and God. But I am inviting you to, to lay that heavy burden down and to receive God's forgiveness. And I'm going to join you because I'm just one of you as well. Let's pray. Lord, how can it be that we would gain a share in your life, in you, in your blood. We who were the reason that you went to the cross. How can it be that you went there willingly? How can it be that your heavenly Father was willing to sacrifice you? Jesus. But we're so thankful that he did. Eternally thankful, deeply thankful. Words cannot begin to express, nor do our minds begin to comprehend the fullness of what was accomplished on our behalf at the cross. But we thank you today that because of the cross, we can know that our sins are forgiven and we can have assurance that because we have trusted in Jesus Christ, transferred our trust from all of the nonsense that we use to prop ourselves up and, and transferring all of that to one person and one person only, Jesus Christ and what he accomplished at the cross for us. So Lord, for those who will come, Will you meet us here? And would you affirm to us your grace, your kindness, your love? In Jesus' name.
Amen.